Hello everyone. Welcome to the first episode of this of the podcast Christian Biographies. In this series I will be discussing uh different Christians throughout the history of the church because I want to know uh the church. The, I think one of the best way to know the church is to know the people of the church. And I'm going to start with someone who I am very familiar with, who I think most people are familiar with, and that is C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a Christian writer, intellect, and theologian from 20, from the 20th century. He was born in Ireland and was raised in England. What's interesting about uh, C.S. Lewis is that he started off his life, or at least uh, when he was young, he was an atheist. And part of what caused him to be an atheist was uh, the death of his mother. He actually described uh, the death of his mother as though a great void or hole uh, came into his life. And it was basic, basically what he means is it was a very, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure on the particulars of what he means, but basically it left a very significant emotional, uh, it, it left very significant emotional pain in his life. And uh, that's what caused him to think that Christianity, I think that's part of what caused him to think that Christianity was problematic is that it could not um, explain the suffering and evil of losing someone as dearly as a mother. And uh, and what's interesting is that it was supposedly the suffering of losing his mother that caused him, that's part of what caused him to be an atheist. Yet when he was a soldier in World War One, he was a soldier on the ground, uh, like Tolkien was. Um I don't believe they met on the battlefield. I don't know if they did, but I, I doubt it. My guess is they were in different regiments or, or yeah, they're in different regiments within the British military. But anyways, um, C.S. Lewis, after experiencing World War One, realized like there has to be an answer for human suffering. There can't just be, there can't just be nothing. And that's what actually eventually drew him and that's part of what drew him back to Christianity. You could say it started him on the road back to Christianity or to Christianity uh, in the first place. Because I don't think he was a convert. He was a converted Christian when he was young. I th He was influenced by a Christian household. He was raised in one. His mother was a devout Christian. And I, I can't remember. I don't know if his father was, but at least his mother was. And... It was uh, J.R.R. Tolkien himself and uh, a friend of theirs in their unofficial uh, group called the Inklings that actually uh, they were uh, talking while they were on a walk together. And it was Tolkien, Lewis, and a friend of theirs from the Inklings. And that was when C.S. Lewis had supposedly put faith in Christ and converted to Christianity, which is a pretty cool story because... You know, I think if you looked at C.S. Lewis's, if you knew C.S. Lewis because of his early life when he was an atheist, you would think that you would worry that there is a potential that he wouldn't become a Christian. When, as time went on, the rea the opposite happened. God sort of chipped away at um the hard edges that C.S. Lewis, the hard edges of the wall that C.S. Lewis had built up in order to keep uh christ out but the reality is 
you can't keep Christ out when um, God's grace is basically like, uh, what what's it called? Um, those machines that they would use in ancient times to destroy walls, uh, crud. But, but I can't remember what it's called, but basically that's what I'm thinking of. God's grace is like that. It's going to obliterate every wall you set up against it, against it, against him to. And I think, um, when you look at C.S. Lewis's writings, whether it's his theology, uh, or fiction or anything related to like his scholarly work, I do think you see the grace of God evident in his, uh, life and evidence of saving faith in, um, in his writings and in how he spoke about the Christian faith. Um, it's interesting because most people's first interaction with C.S. Lewis as a writer is the Chronicles of Narnia. And while I did read The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, that was probably the first book I read of C.S. Lewis um, back in like fifth grade. We listened to an audio version of it while we read the book uh, in class. It was like an audio drama, actually. It was it was really good. It made the book feel all the more uh, enjoyable. It made the book all the more enjoyable and made it feel all the more real. Um, what I think is interesting, though, what really got me into C.S. Lewis was actually um, his theology and intellect, the way he talked about Christianity. And um, the book that, the specific book that got me into theology in general, and not just C.S. Lewis's theological writings, but also Christianity in general, is um, the book Mere Christianity, which is considered to be one of the best books ever written by a Christian author. Like, there was, um, I saw this poll once that was taken, like, this competition of, like, the best uh, Christian book in the history of the church, and it went all the way back from, like, Augustine's City of God and his confessions to um, uh, writings from the uh, book, Christian books from that were famously written in the 20th century. And C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity was among them. And according to what, and what happened in the competition was people voted for Lewis's Mere Christianity over uh, Augustine's City of God in the final round. Mere Christianity beat out the City of God. And City of God, if you don't know, is a very influential book in the history of the church, not just for the time it was written in, but for, uh, but, the book still has an impact on how Christians think about politics today, which is very impressive, but mere Christianity, and it makes sense that mere Christianity would win in a, in a poll like that because it's much closer to our time. People feel more connected to it. So the fact that it would win out makes sense, but also I think it speaks to how, um, C.S. Lewis, even though he is more of a, his audience is more connected to, is closer to our times, like, timeline-wise. His book does have, like, I want to say ancient wisdom because it reflects the ancient yet eternal wisdom that God shows in the in the Bible. That's not to say C.S. Lewis's wisdom is equal with God's. That's not all I'm saying. But it reflects kind of like a mirror. It reflects, or or like the how the moon reflects the light of the sun, um, C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity reflects uh, the light of God's wisdom. And that is what I mean by that. Um, and that's what I really love about the book. It's really, I would say, a summary of how Christians discern between right and wrong in the world and how we address 
uh, suffering and how it harms human flourishing. Human flourishing as in like how God wants us to flourish, how he designed us to flourish. And that's really, I think, the, the, I, I think that's really the best way to summarize mere Christianity. It's about how Christians discern between right and wrong and how um, we understand how suffering affects um, human flourishing in light of how God has designed us to flourish. So C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity was really the book that got me into theology in general, as well as just his writings. And from there, I basically kind of became a C.S. Lewis fanatic, especially with his theology. Um, I've read The Abolition of Man, The Screwtape Letters. That was actually the next book that I read by C.S. Lewis was The Screwtape Letters, which, if you don't know, that's basically a book about a, a, a demon who, it's fictional, but it uh, bears uh, significant theological ideas and understandings that every that every Christian can recognize, and that and so it's a fictional depiction of a demon who is writing the demon's name. The uncle demon's name is uh, Screw Tape, and he's writing to his nephew Wormwood because every chapter starts with "My dear Mor- Wormwood," and he. And Wormwood is his nephew, who is trying to tempt this man uh, to sin. And at first, I think it was like the first or second chapter, he's like not a Christian. But then the person that Wormwood is deceiving or trying to cause to sin is um, he uh, becomes a Christian. And that's when like Screwtape becomes really mad, which is I, I just thought it was super funny because it's like, yep, that's basically what happens. Um uh, when a man becomes a Christian, the demons clench their teeth and pound their fists, and all of heaven rejoices. It's a great contrast, I think. And um, from there, uh, Screwtape just says, "While you might not be able to bring him, oh, while you won't be able to really bring him away from the Christian faith, you might still be able to create stumbling blocks in his life to help him, to cause him to." Uh, be in distress about his faith and that's kind of where the book goes on from there there's um i forget who read it read the audio version that you can listen to on youtube but he reads like every chapter and uh, he does a really good job when you the guy who does the audio work of the screw tape letters and he i don't know if he's british i want to say he's british because you know british men make really good villains. I mean, in, in, uh, movies. So, I mean, just ask Christopher Lee. <laughs> that guy was typecast as a villain a lot. But anyways, that's beside the point. Uh, after the screw tape letters, uh, what other book did I get into? <sighs> um, I don't remember exactly the order I read them in, but I know I read, um, the abolition of man. And that was actually with, uh, within the past couple of years. It's a shorter book, but it's really good. It's about basically how uh, humanity, modern man, is trying to, um, uh, what you call it, uh, basically uh, destroy man because they're removing a significant uh, function of that man has that God in, intendedly designed for them to have. But they're saying, no, that that's um, a matter of sub- subjectivity. We don't need that. And yet, 
we don't need that. And um, it's, its focus is on the heart of man, really, and what it means for man to say we don't need to have this particular organ of focus on virtue and moral facts. Essentially, what um, C.S. Lewis was describing in the abolition of man, or arguing for, is that mod- modernism is trying to uh, destroy mankind not because they realize or it's a it's a difficult book to describe honestly i had trouble understanding it myself at points but how i would summarize it is c.s lewis is critiquing modernism in such a way that you see how uh, modern philosophy and thinking about how man's purpose has really downgraded it to we're just here to exist and survive and that essentially throws out all the importance of of thinking about you know what does it mean to be good what does it mean to do good what does it mean to have moral facts or what does it mean to be virtuous and it's ironic because those same people who don't realize they're throwing those things out are surprised when they find uh people who are not being virtuous they, I forget the exact line, but they're surprised to find uh, traitors. They expect to find friends and they instead find traitors in their midst. Before I move on, I do want to apologize for how I addressed CSOs as the abolition of man at first, because I, it is a bit more difficult to understand and discern what he's talking about exactly. But once you, um, a good way to understand, I would be, I would say is just like, Look up um, a summary of it online or honestly just pick up Doug Wilson's book on um, uh, Light from Behind the Sun, which is basically a summary of how C.S. Lewis has impacted him and has generally impacted Christians in general. That's definitely a book I would recommend uh, picking up because it focuses a lot on C.S. Lewis's theological uh, beliefs and why his writing is so impactful. So if you're ever interested in reading a summary of why C.S. Lewis is so impactful for modern Christians, I would pick up Light from Behind the Sun by Douglas Wilson. The next and last thing I'll get into about uh, C.S. Lewis is probably his discussion of heaven and hell, specifically within his book, uh, The Great Divorce. Now, when I first started uh, reading this book, I actually read it on um, a flight that was uh, delayed, and I got through about half or more of it before the flight actually took off. Um, it was a flight that was supposed to head f- head from Minneapolis to Chicago and then Chicago all the way to, we were supposed to have our flight land in Chicago and then from Chicago we would go all the way to uh, Dublin, Ireland. It was a trip to Europe that I took with a group of students from uh, my high school and uh, it, it was a fun trip but um, basically the flight from Minneapolis to Chicago was delayed and we were worried we were going to miss our flight to Ireland. Good news is we didn't, thankfully. But um, it was fu- it was kind of funny. What uh, led me to start reading *The Great Divorce* was a delayed flight, and um, I, looking back, I kind of look at it as like kind of a blessing because it allowed me to focus and read uh, uh, what I think is arguably C.S. Lewis's best book, other than *Mere Christianity* and *The Chronicles of Narnia*. And um, the I remember reading it and thinking like. I mean, C.S. Lewis, he's able to spark, like, 
beautiful visuals in like the imagination of his readers. That's one thing I think he's really good at. The other thing is he's able to help you see the importance of how, (coughs) excuse me, fiction can be used to teach valuable theological lessons. Now the book starts off with this character. It's actually supposed to be Lewis himself uh, is the character, the main character in the book. And he starts off in a boarding a bus in hell and hell is not depicted as this fiery as this fiery brimstone place but rather a place where um people are just kind of going about their day doing whatever they want whatever they please and not bothering anyone else and that sounds like a pleasant uh place to be however when he gets on the bus to take it to this what's called heaven he ascends this waterfall and it just becomes bigger and bigger as he ascends it. And the bus lands on top of, uh, where the water, the top of where the waterfall is on this plot of land. And as soon as he gets out of the bus, he feels the grow the grass beneath him as really hardened and it's hard to walk on, which is weird. And also he notices that, uh, when he looks at the other beings that were with him on the bus, they're like ghosts because he looks at these beings that are on the land near the waterfall and they're solid. They, not only do they look solid, but they walk on the grass like it's not painful at all. And eventually, C.S. Lewis's character catches up with uh, his fictional depiction of George MacDonald, who is one of these solid beings. Uh, George MacDonald, just for reference, is argued... Really, C.S. Lewis's biggest influence in terms of writing and imagination, and also, um, it, and C.S. Lewis uh, actually referenced him once, saying that um, when he read George MacDonald, he found in himself like a mentor and a brother, uh, something along those lines. I don't remember the exact quote. I'm kind of paraphrasing or paraphrasing what he said but basically he found a deep close friend in George MacDonald even though they never met in real life because like by the time C.S. Lewis was like five George MacDonald I think was uh by the time uh C.S. Lewis was maybe like 10 years old George MacDonald had died George MacDonald just for reference C.S. Lewis was born in the mid to late 1890s and George MacDonald died in 1905 but um, yeah, C.S. Lewis decides to write George MacDonald as the man who would guide him through uh, the, this realm of solid beings or heaven. And I find it quite interesting because, C- because George MacDonald himself was a universalist. He was a Christian who believed um, that he was universalist in terms of who would be saved uh, at the end of time. And he believed that everyone uh, would be saved. Now, Church history, throughout church history, um, theologians have met and discussed. Clergy, theologians, preachers have met and discussed, and they have and they have agreed that the Bible teaches that universalism is a heresy. It is not what Scripture actually teaches. This is actually something that Tolkien and his Christian friends warned C.S. Lewis about, because I think early on in C.S. Lewis's faith, he believed that universalism was a legitimate position to have for salvation, for the salvation of humanity. But Tolkien and others like him uh, told him, no, that's not a good position because church history has taught us that's not 
what the Bible teaches, and when you look at Scripture, that's not what it teaches either. But what I think is interesting is that, so some will say still that C.S. Lewis is a universalist, which I think is actually kind of debatable, because um, when you read The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis shows that heaven and hell are real, and that you should not blur the lines between them. That uh, heaven and hell, when you blur the lines between them, you actually lead people to hell. And that's actually, I think, part of the lesson that George MacDonald's character teaches in um, The Great Divorce. Which is kind of ironic, because the way George MacDonald uh, teaches Lewis's character in the book about heaven and hell and its distinctions and why those matter, he's actually going against what George MacDonald believed with regards to his universalist view of salvation, which is kind of ironic. George MacDonald, who is actually a universalist, is disagreeing with is in disagreement with the fictional depiction of George MacDonald, who is the fictional depiction is not a universalist, which is kind of ironic. And I, although I find it really, it's ironic and really interesting for C.S. Lewis to do that. I think it's partially C.S. Lewis's way of reconciling that, like, yeah, the guy who I consider a mentor, I think he's deeply wrong on this and I'm going to and he, even though he's no longer with us, he probably knows better because he is, he, even though he has died, he has gone to be with God and he knows, and he knows better now, which is probably why he, part of why he depicted him in this fictional depiction of heaven as, um, as agreeing with what the Bible teaches that, uh, hell is for those whom God has given over to, uh, their sins, their depravity and their lusts for what is not of God. Which is actually a very accurate depiction of what hell is in Romans 1. Romans 1 is God gave them up to their sin because they loved depraved things. They loved uh, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. If you want a good summary of what hell is and why there are people that go there, read Romans 1 and you'll get what I mean. The other thing I wanted to say is that I love the discussions that George MacDonald's character has with C.S. Lewis's character in The Great Divorce because they're discussing these ghosts interacting with solid beings and seeing whether or not these ghosts will actually turn away from their uh, turn away from their sin, what's keeping them from entering heaven. They'll repent, have faith in Jesus, and turn and come into the heavenly realms and become solid beings. And also one thing to point out is that C.S. Lewis was still a ghost when walking with George MacDonald. But as he walked with George MacDonald, he, the grass, when he walked on it, did not feel, it did not hurt. He, bar- he barely felt any pain while walking on it because he was with a solid being. And the, there are the, and again, I love the discussions that go on in the book that are depicted. I can't get into them into a detailed discussion about them here. I'll probably do that at some point later. But I love C.S. Lewis's um, discussion, that this, uh, writing in these discussions, because they're very important. One is a woman who would not let go of the fact that her son had died, her beloved son, because she he meant so much to her. She loved him so much. But in reality, the book reminds us that just because you... 
love someone so much does not mean your love is in order. And this actually references C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves, where he talks about the four different kinds of loves and how if you're if God if loving God is not put first, your other loves will be out of order. So in not loving God first, this lady who is a ghost is talking with a a friend of hers who is a solid being who knew her in her life on earth and said the reason God took him away was because you would not, you did not love him. You loved your son more than anything. Now, parents are supposed to put the loving their kids before most everything else after love of their spouse and that after love of God. But the thing is she loved her son so much she idolized him she made it she made the love of her son an idol she made her son an idol and that's the thing she uh the conversation that she's having with the solid being is left unfinished which i really like that c.s lewis does that because it reminds us that like while she is really frustrated right now that with in discussing uh this matter with the solid being that doesn't mean there's no hope for her because her frustration is coming to the surface and she's beginning to realize what she's actually what she actually was doing and choosing to love her son so much that she idolized him and um there's also this other discussion of like i think he's uh, i believe he's supposed to be a theologian but that's kind of ironic because you would expect him to actually already be as a solid being in the heavenly realms. But the reality is just because you study a lot of theology doesn't mean your salvation is secure with God because repentance and faith is what makes your salvation secure with God. So repentance and faith in his son, Jesus Christ as your Lord and savior is what makes uh, your salvation secure with God. It is what justifies you before him. Now the thing uh, to remember is that uh this guy the thing to realize is that this guy was so focused on discussing and studying theology that he said to one of the solid beings the point is not to arrive at an an answer but to continue the discussion of the but to revolve the discussion continue the discussion but it's like if you just continue the discussion then there's never gonna you're never gonna find an answer but in speaking to the solid being he reveals his heart, the nature of his heart, and that he didn't love God. He didn't love studying uh, the glory of God. He only loved studying. Uh, he only loved studying what, um, what interested him. What he thought was God. He saw the. I don't want to say the theology itself is God, or he he saw the study of theology itself as God. Not theology itself, but the study of theology as God. And so he worshipped that, the study of theology. But the thing is, we're never to worship the study of theology. We are to study theology as Christians, but the thing is, we're never to make it into an idol or to worship it. That is where this guy went way off the rails, and that is why he came up to heaven as a ghost being. And I think he was one of the ghost beings that... uh returned to uh returned to hell on the bus and in the great divorce i actually really like c.s lewis's depiction of hell because it's not like what you would typically think of hell because again this is part of i think his critique of modernism 
is that um, people want to be so left alone that, in fact, uh, one of the people describes hell as, like, separating each individual house, like, so far apart from one another that, like, you might never meet your neighbor. And that's kind of one of the... uh, the, That's one of the uh, negative results of modernism is that people don't... are so uninterested in loving their neighbor and doing what is honoring to God that they would completely separate themselves from doing anything of that nature. And so that doesn't allow them to eventually reach the point of faith and repentance in Christ, which I think is a really important point of the book and especially C.S. Lewis's uh, depiction of hell. And even C.S. Lewis at the beginning of the book reminds his audience, like, I'm not trying to give like a literal like image look of heaven and hell but rather trying to express the theology of what the Bible teaches in a fictional depiction of it. He reminds his readers, the imagery that I depict is fictional, but the theology of both, of, depic- of how he depicts heaven and hell is true because it aligns with scripture, which I think is a really important point to aim at when you discuss uh, the great divorce. That will do it for this episode. That is the last thing I will discuss about C.S. Lewis. I hope to do another episode of C.S. Lewis that involves uh, bringing people on to discuss him because I know a couple of big C.S. Lewis uh, fans who have studied him a lot and read his writings a lot, and they would probably know more about him than I do. But um, I hope you've enjoyed this uh, episode about C.S. Lewis. Uh, Just because I do one episode of a particular person in church history doesn't mean, like, I won't do another episode about them sometime later. I definitely want to have more than one episode about them if that, if, if that is, like, possible to do, which with C.S. Lewis it it most certainly is. Um, That necessarily won't be the next episode I do, but it will be definitely a future episode that I want to do if it's not the next one. But yeah, I hope you guys enjoy this uh, first episode of discussing uh, ch- the people of the church in the in the history of the church, and I look forward to discussing the next figure. <laughs>